Welcome to the Exam Study Expert Podcast, helping you ace your exams at school and university through the psychology of high performance and the science of studying smarter, not harder. It's my pleasure to introduce your host, the Cambridge-trained memory psychologist and exam success coach, William Wadsworth. Hello and welcome to this special synoptic edition of the Exam Study Experts podcast. If academic writing is part of your studies, you'll no doubt know all about the importance of a good conclusion. And so, with the academic year drawing to an end, at least in many countries, this episode is designed to act as something of a conclusion, synthesising everything we've talked about over the last 10 months or so. I've sifted through all the interviews we've broadcast in that time to pick out six of my absolute favourite moments from all the guest experts we've been lucky enough to feature on the show. It was tough to narrow it down to just six moments, but I've tried to give you a nice balance of different ideas across the different aspects of studying smarter that we cover on the podcast. So in this episode, you can look forward to some top advice on study motivation and the importance of a good mindset, some techniques for improving your focus and managing your time better, and a couple of powerful but often overlooked learning strategies to help your memory, help you learn faster and remember more. And if you particularly enjoy any of these six extracts, I'll always try and mention the episode number. So you can go back and listen or perhaps re-listen to the full episodes if you'd like. Or you can also check out the show notes uh, for all the details on any featured guest. I'm going to kick things off today with our first guest extract. And I've chosen uh, Dr. Erica Patel, the rock star study motivation psychologist. She broke listener records when her episode came out, uh, so it would be remiss of me not to include a deep cut from my conversation with her in this roundup of the past year. In the segment you're about to hear, I was asking her for her take on a bunch of common motivation strategies to try to get to the bottom of what really works, cutting through the myths when it comes to getting motivated to study. We started by talking about the importance of goals. Definitely. Goals are helpful. They're critical. But there's always a but, provided they are well-defined, somewhat challenging, and you can actually achieve them. And they're not totally outlandish. Setting ridiculous goals that you can't achieve is probably going to demotivate you in the long run. And also setting too many goals that are competing with each other is is potentially going to have problems for your motivation. But if you pair well-defined, challenging, achievable goals with plans for actually implementing them, you're definitely doing yourself a favor. Cool, cool. I sometimes hear about the distinction between people making distinction between sort of process goals versus outcome goals, where your process goal is, I'm going to work for two hours a day, and my outcome goal is, I'm going to get an A on the test. Any thoughts on the merits of that distinction? You actually need both, I think. You need need something that you value, some higher goal that you value that you're going to be working towards, and that keeps you engaged in the process goals. 
And without the process goals, you don't really have a plan for how you're going to get to that um, higher level goal that you you actually value, right? So both are really critical. That's smart. That makes sense. Rewards and punishments also you know, incredibly popular and have all sorts of uh, implementations. You know, I, I sometimes see, particularly once they're at college or university, students using some kind of incredibly elaborate strategies to reward themselves or punish themselves to, to keep them on track. Uh, you know, I don't know if you've heard of an app called Beeminder, which basically makes you pay fines if you miss your, I think, particularly your process goals. Thoughts about rewards and punishments then? Rewards and punishments definitely work to get people to do stuff. There's there's really very little doubt of that. That doesn't mean that people feel good uh, about doing whatever they're rewarding and, and getting rewarded and punished for. Um, but if you have some kind of undesirable task that you can't find another way to motivate yourself to do it, rewards and punishment are, are, are definitely going to get you to do it. Or most of the time, if you find good ones, if you find rewards and punishers that are actually meaningful to you, that is, um, they will get you to do that activity you may hate, right? Um, I also think it's a pretty different psychological experience to be rewarding and punishing yourself. Presumably, you're doing that because you value the goal, right? In the first place. Otherwise, why would you bother to exert those rewards and punishment on yourself. Um, so that's different than when, for example, the environment, your teacher, your parent, whoever is exerting the rewards and punishers. That becomes pretty controlling and can can off can sometimes backfire, though it gets people to do stuff. So I would just say it's kind of a it's a it's effective, but hopefully it's a last resort or as technique people use when they can't find another way to to find the internal motivation to do something. Yeah, so that idea it's possible to uh, affect your beliefs for the worse about how interested you are in something by subjecting yourself to too strong a punishment or a or reward. Um, sticking with that idea of beliefs, uh, the next one I had on my list was growth mindset. And that's the importance of uh, strategies like that in helping us overcome limiting beliefs such as I'm not good enough, or I don't feel I'm good enough, or I'm talented enough to succeed. So mindsets, efficacy beliefs, values, I would, I would say those are all really critical sources of motivation and sources of people's success and students' success in their coursework and, and beyond. Um, you said it well, if you don't have a mindset that emphasizes the importance of growth, that you're capable of learning then your effort is going to suffer and you'll experience, you're going to experience a self-fulfilling prophecy essentially. Now mindset is no panacea for performance challenges. Sometimes a task is really hard and it takes a lot of learning and support to, you know, to get it, but challenges are near impossible to overcome without a mindset of being able to do something or being able to learn or, or believing something is worth pursuing. Um, if you don't have that mindset, then you're pretty unlikely to persist through challenges. Well, thanks, Erica. For more from that excellent conversation, again, it's episode number 43. 
Next up, I want to pick up on that important point Erica left us with about mindset and how powerful it can be with the help of Professor Tim Wilson. Tim is the world-renowned mindset scholar behind the book Redirect, Changing the Stories We Live By. This book is perhaps the one I most commonly find myself recommending to students, parents and teachers. It's fantastic. And so here to tell us more about the power of mindset is Professor Tim Wilson himself. Within the environment in which we find ourselves, the narrative or mindset we have that we tell ourselves is is crucial. I mean, I'll I'll give one personal example that I bet many students have, have had a similar experience When I was a a freshman in college, I was taking a biology course. It came time for the first test, and I studied a little bit for it, um, but I I kind of approached it the way I did tests in high school. I thought I was prepared, and to my shock, I failed the test. I I got the grade back, and I just couldn't believe I had never failed a test before. I think what was crucial is what story I told myself about that. Mm. I, I could have said, well, I guess I'm not college material. I, I guess uh, I can't make it here. I should do something else. I should drop out. I just, why try if I just don't have the ability? Or fortunately, um, the story I did tell myself is, wow, this is a wake-up call. I really need to try a different approach And I studied as hard as I could for the rest of the course and ended up doing quite well on the the rest of the test. But but only because of my story that I I had a narrative that, you know, don't give up yet. Try something else. And fortunately, that worked for me. You know, one of the very first studies I did after I got out of graduate school, embarrassingly long ago, (laughs) (laughs) was a study that tried to do this and with uh, first-year college students who were not doing well and were anxious about it. We did a simple little intervention study where we, we brought them in and um, we never told them we were trying to help them academically. They thought they were just taking part in a survey. And we gave them some statistics indicating that many people stumble at first but get better. And we showed them some testimonials from older students on video saying, yeah, you know, my first year I did terribly, but I learned how to study better and now I'm doing just fine. And that brief little message, I I think what happened is that these kids were kind of a narrative fork in the road where um, without this intervention, they were in danger of going down that negative path of assuming they couldn't make it in college and all the baggage that comes with that. But this little intervention nudged them onto a different path where they could say, yeah, you know, maybe I should at least try a different strategy. And compared to a randomly assigned control group, this intervention group did better. They, they got better grades in college. They were more apt to stay in college. Again, this isn't magical. It's not like we turn C students into A students, um, but they did raise their grades significantly more than the other group. And since then, there's been really in the last, I say, 10 or 15 years, an explosion of this sort of research in social psychology showing that brief interventions can have really impressive long-term effects by um, getting people to sort of build on it themselves, suggesting a new interpretation that they adopt and try out and 
once they do, they get positive feedback about it. And so it kind of reinforces itself over time with pretty impressive long-term benefits. I'm fascinated by the power of mindsets to help us become better scholars. And the full episode with Tim, number 42, is full of very practical recommendations on how you can change the stories you tell yourself for the better, including techniques like journaling about disappointing events to help overcome them, understanding your brain's power to grow and develop new and better skills, which is often called growth mindset, as well as, as we heard, uh, soaking up stories of transformation and success from students who've gone before you. To help you out a little bit on that last point, a major theme on the upcoming season of the podcast later this year is going to be hearing from real students. I want to share stories from listeners and some of my coaching clients who have turned things around or taken their success to fresh heights so you can hear how they did it and find your own source of inspiration that such change and improvement is possible. You can start looking out for those interviews from September. And actually, I might still have room for one or two more success stories. Uh, So if you feel you've managed to level up or overcome adversity in some way in your studies, I'd love to hear from you. If you have a success story to share, however big or small you feel it is, drop me an email at william at examstudyexpert.com. And who knows, you might get yourself featured on the show anonymously, if that's what you'd like, uh, as most of the students in the series are. Uh, That's william at examstudyexperts.com if you'd like to get in touch. Now, focus and concentration has been a bit of a theme on the show this year. And so the third extract I've got for you today comes from my conversation with focus expert, college professor James Lang. Well, attention is actually the kind of foundation for learning. No learning will happen unless, um, you know, the student or whoever the learner might be um, pays the kind of initial attention to the material. A lot of things need to happen in order for something to be learned deeply. Uh, and that would include process the material, sort of encode it into their brains. You need to be able to retrieve it later, for example. That's another sign that something has been learned deeply. They also need to kind of step, whole process has to start with attention. And so if we don't you know, take that first fundamental step, no learning is going to happen. And attention needs to happen kind of throughout the process as well. So attention actually, um, I mean, one of the things that the most fundamental things about it is that it is a limited capacity resource. Um, We only have so much attention to give. You can be very easily pulled away from what you're trying to pay attention to um, by all kinds of things. Um, And that's always been the case. So, you know, we can look at that both from a historical and biological perspective. Historically, you know, we can go back to the writers of antiquity, to you know our ancient religious texts, and we find people talking about their easily distractible minds. Uh, one of my favorite examples of this is Aristotle talking in the Ethics about the fact that you know when the acting is bad in a play, people are more likely to eat their snacks, for example, right? Or he'll also talk about when um, another point in the Ethics when people are listening to an argument, um, if they enjoy flute playing and they hear a flute being played somewhere, they're going to stop paying attention to the argument and start listening to that flute playing. And so we have all kinds of examples of people talking about this throughout history. And then from a biological perspective, um, of course, it made sense for us to be able to pay attention to something. And, you know, that's sort of helpful for us in evolutionary terms, but it would not have been helpful for us in evolutionary terms for us to be able to pay attention and completely block out everything around us. 
because that would have subjected us to dangers, right? So I might be, you know, stalking a prey, but then not be aware of the fact that I'm a potential prey myself, right? So like um, our attention systems actually are, are capable of both focusing on something, but then kind of being aware of like the ambient surroundings and being aware of the environment and um, kind of in some ways drawn to like novelties in the environment because that it was helpful to us. Even though, you know, obviously we, we've evolved a long way, we still have that kind of basic functions in our brain. So, you know, we love novelty. We love to get kind of like bursts of novelty and new information. And obviously our devices provide us with that. So what I like to say to people is we've always had easily distractible brains. What's changed is that our devices are very good at playing on that feature of our brains. And they're much better at it than they used to be, right? Like, so, you know, when I was young, I could be easily distracted by the television, but I had to walk across the room and turn it on, right? Like, or you know, find the remote to turn it on. Now, you know, television or whatever, a million other things are available to me in my pocket all the time. So that's really the difference is our, um, our, our technologies have gotten really good at playing on our distractible brains. And thanks, James. A really helpful reminder there about why it's so important to follow the advice you've probably heard a million times before and keep your phone off, uh, preferably out of sight, out of the room, even when you're trying to get some studying done. Now, continuing with this idea of productivity and maximising the amount you can get done in a given amount of time, I was very excited to bring you Brian Tracy in episode 39 the multi-multi-million copy international best-selling author whose famous time management seminars have been attended by over 5 million people worldwide across the course of his career. Now in his late 70s, he's still going strong and spent much of the last year exploring how his ideas about time management could apply to students for his new book. Again, linked in the show notes for you. The extract you'll hear is from the end of the conversation we had, where he starts to summarise some of his key tips for students for managing time and completing the tasks you've got to do. And what happens in high school is we have so many distractions is that we fall further and further behind. And uh, what you have to do is, is you have to catch up and make a list. Think about, write, write it down, write it down, write it down, make a list. Set, make a checklist and so on and keep up with your assignments and put the, side, put the time aside and close the door and turn off uh, all electronic distractions, as we say. Uh, and the way that you s- succeed today is either turn things off or leave things off. And so that you can, you can create a studying, a work environment. And then what you do is you simply concentrate single-mindedly and on completing one task at a time. And so just as we have said, make a list of everything that you have to do. And, and the, the time that you spend, every minute, it's one of the things that I point out, every minute spent in planning saves 10 minutes in execution. It's just a basic rule. So take the time and plan out everything in advance. And everybody who is successful throughout the world, throughout history, plans and organizes in advance. My first job was washing dishes in the uh, back of a small hotel and then uh, washing uh, cars in a car lot and then uh, washing floors with a janitorial service. I joke and I say, I I thought 
washing was going to be in my future. Yeah. That's all I could find. But then I worked in factories and I worked on farms and I slept in my car and everything else. I didn't have any education or skill. I didn't know any of these things. And the one thing I learned, which led us to this book, is that uh, I learned that the way you manage your time and the results that you accomplish for other people are going to have more of an effect on your success and your income than perhaps any other thing. So uh, remember that is you whatever you're doing today, your uh, potential uh, is unlimited. Is uh, we're living in an extraordinary time in history, and you can accomplish wonderful things by simply uh, learning more and more and uh, continually upgrading your skills. Practice the sort of the Warren Buffett method is just say no to anything that does not help you to achieve your most important task at the time and continually read and learn and upgrade so that you become more and more competent at what you do so you get more and better results faster. And that will help you not only in earning more money, but it'll make you happy. And that's the wonderful thing of all. You will be a happy person. You, you'll have this, this, this cheerfulness about you because you know how to start and complete tasks. And once you start and complete a few tasks, you get into the rhythm of it and you know how to do it next time and next time and next time. There was a lot summarised in that. So I just want to take a second to highlight four key points. First, backing up what we heard from James Lang, be sure to turn off the distractions and focus on one thing at a time. Second, the importance of planning and getting your lists of things you need to do out of your head and organised on paper. Third, just saying no to anything that doesn't help you to achieve your most important task. That could be in the moment or that could be looking across your overall uh, list of commitments across weeks uh, and months, what you decide to take on and what you decide to say no to. And finally, knowing that even if you're a habitual procrastinator, you can change your habits and teach yourself to be a task completer. It may feel hard at first, but the more you push through, the more confidence you'll have in your ability to see things through and the easier it will get in future. If you struggle with any aspects of your productivity today and are looking to change, then as with anything you'd like to change or improve about yourself, I'd encourage you to reflect back on some of the wisdom we heard from Tim and Erica a little earlier in today's episode. Specifically, understanding the power of growth mindset and having confidence in your own ability to grow and change and level up. Uh, and secondly, considering looking for role models or success stories from people who've made similar changes before you uh, to help increase your belief that better things are going to be possible for you too. My final two picks for this episode are taken from the Science of Learning series, which we ran earlier this year from episode 45 through 49. It was a wonderful set of interviews with some of the world's leading cognitive psychologists who study various aspects of how we learn and how memory works, and who are experts on how we as students can use techniques to work smarter and get more done in less time by helping us learn faster and remember more. The first clip I've chosen is taken from episode 47 with Dr. Carolina Kupertetzel. 
I chose this episode for a couple of reasons. Partly because Carolina is certified awesome in my book. She's not only a real expert in her field, but a superb and passionate communicator. She's part of the team behind the extremely well-regarded Learning Scientists blog and podcast, which some of you have probably heard of. But I also picked out Carolina's episode because her specialism is spaced learning. Spaced learning is a simple idea and incredibly powerful when used well. The trouble is, it's a surprisingly tricky concept to actually put into practice. So here's Carolina talking about what spacing is and why it's so important. So we know from massive body of research that space practice works with different kinds of material, with different learners, so young learners, uh, more mature learners. We know that it works for different types of skills that you want to acquire. It works for acquiring knowledge remembering facts, but it also works for motor skills, for example, mm. for um, learning on how to play the piano or on learning, for example, what you, what you would learn in PE, so mm. how to, to throw a basketball and so on. So we have those different experimental studies that were conducted over the, the past years and showing really that um, it accumulated this evidence that space practice is a strategy that works for many different domains and for many different um, learners. It is actually a strategy that dates back to 1885 to Hermann Ebbinghaus, who basically showed that we can get out more from our learning if we have time between seeing the information for the first time and revisiting that information. So the forgetting of that information, the more spacing you have in between, and if you're still able to retrieve that information when you revisit that information. So that's basically the key part here. Let's say you study something on a Monday, right? And then um, you wait a week and you try to retrieve that information as form of a, of a study event. So if you're still able to do, to do that, that is more effective and will slow down forgetting more than, for example, if you had restudied that information right after you have heard it for the first time. I went on to ask Carolina more about some of the practical considerations when applying spacing in practice. How do we actually start doing all of this for real? So, yeah, so there are different things that come into play there. First of all, that what we just discussed that, you know, to, to retrieve that information and to reactivate that information just quite before it's forgotten. Another thing is to keep in mind is the forgetting curve. Mm. Okay. So what we know from starting with the research that Hermann Ebbinghaus did in 1885, what we know is that most of the forgetting takes place in the first 24 hours. Mm. So in the in the very beginning when you have been presented with something for the first time. If you don't reactivate it within that short period of time in the beginning, it basically that's when the most forgetting happens. So as a tip for students, what I like to suggest is when they hear something, studying a new concept um, in class, for example, new, new ideas in class, what I would suggest is to do a restudy episode in the evening of that same day. Uh, because it uses that critical time period of reactivating that information in that time period where we tend to forget um, most of the information. Uh, 
And it also makes use of the benefits of sleep. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, if you study in the evening of that, uh, of that day, for example, you're going to study just before you go to sleep. And sleep is the magic that glues together our, our knowledge and where knowledge is consolidated and really helps remembering information in the long term. So if you are able to schedule a learning um, session in the evening before going to sleep, that's really beneficial. After that, I would probably suggest to go for an expanding learning schedule. So that means that you increase the, the gaps between one study session and the next as time goes by. So let's say the first gap would be a couple of hours, 10 hours or something like that. The next mm -hmm. gap would be two days, the next one a week, the next one three weeks a month and so on. So you would ex expand that schedule over time. I have done an experiment showing that expanding and equal scheduled lags between study episodes were both beneficial. However, there was a follow-up experiment by, by other researchers done a couple of years later. And what they have looked at is the initial learning that took place. So basically, how much prior knowledge the participants actually had and how well they knew the information after the initial learning episode. And what they found is if that level of, of knowledge um, in the beginning is low, then they benefit more from an expanding learning schedule. So because you could think that, you know, if memory is kind of fragile in the beginning and then you reactivate it uh, at a shorter period of time, it had a better chance to actually be reactivated and remembered. Um, and this helps in the long term. From taking those different bits of different research together, I would suggest students to adopt expanding learning schedule in their routine. And that was an extract from episode 47 with Dr. Carolina Kupertetzel on the importance of spacing out your learning. So not just studying something in one block on one day, but revisiting that material, maybe that evening, the next day, uh, and later that week. Each time, as Carolina says, you want to be retrieving what you previously studied. In other words, testing yourself on it pulling that knowledge out of memory in some way, such as by doing quiz questions, testing yourself with flashcards, or simply scribbling down the key points about that topic on a blank sheet of paper. Carolina just mentioned the idea to revisit new material from classes in the evening each day. Uh, I think this is a great idea and it forms the basis of my uh, memory journaling technique, which I've linked in the show notes if you want to read more about uh, my advice on that. Uh, I would just note that if you have any problems getting a good night's sleep or if you're at all stressed or anxious about your studies, I wouldn't recommend studying right before you go to sleep. Otherwise, you'll be going to, to bed with all those, those thoughts and worries sort of buzzing around your, your head. Um, in this case, it's absolutely fine to do this exercise earlier in the evening uh, and then make sure you've got a good wind down routine, at least half an hour, maybe even an hour uh, between stopping studying and, and going to bed to make sure you, uh, you're nice and relaxed when it's time to go to bed and you get a great night's sleep. And the spacing effect will still work great for you if you do the exercise earlier in the evening. My final clip today is Dr. Veronica Yan. Veronica joined us in episode 49 to talk to us all about interleaving. This isn't a widely known technique, 
but it's well supported by the science and is a really powerful strategy to have in your arsenal for when studying isn't so much about memorising facts, more about practising problems, as you find in maths, science and engineering. Interleaving is one of these really interesting, actually quite counterintuitive ways of studying. Let's say you're studying for your biology exam and you have several different concepts that gets covered as part of this exam, just as any exam has multiple different things. The way in which we oftentimes study is we think to ourselves, well, let's go chronologically. Let's go one thing at a time. Um, The way we teach is also one thing at a time. And oftentimes we say, well, you know, I'm really going to focus on this concept and make sure I get it first before I move on to the next. And that's what we mean by blocking, blocking your study by concept. Interleaving, on the other hand, is this idea that actually, if you mix up the study, go back and forth between these related topics, that can actually lead to better learning. And it feels very counterintuitive because it feels less organized. It feels more difficult. You don't feel like you're on a roll with your learning quite as much. You keep finding yourself having to, you know, step back, remind yourself of what happened before. It takes a little bit more effort to re-engage yourself with the, with the concept again after you come back to it, um, having turned your, turned your attention to some, something else. But interleaving, because it actually forces you to take that step back, to reload, remind yourself, because it then allows you to also juxtapose could possibly confusable concepts so that you can see the critical differences between them and understand broader connections and how they actually relate to the bigger picture. That leads to better long-term learning. Got it. Got it. So just to kind of give maybe a, maybe a sort of practical example of how that might work in practice, say I'm a student at middle school or high school and I'm, I'm learning some basic calculus. So I've just learned about differentiation and integration in my math or maths classes <laughs> in, in recent weeks. What would interleaving suggest about the best way to practice those two different types of problems? Interleaving would suggest that you should take these differentiation and integration questions and mix them all up. And this might take just a little extra work because chances are what you have in the back of the chapters of your book is just all the the differentiation questions together and all the integration questions together. Just throw them in a big pot and mix them up. Part of the thing that is challenging and daunting to a lot of students is we oftentimes think to ourselves, well, I, I can't possibly move on and introduce a whole bunch of other concepts until I feel like I have some base familiarity. And and some research has shown that some amount of blocking initially can be good for initial learning to really kind of get that base familiarity. But the real advice I would give is you really ought to start interleaving way before you think you should. Yeah. Oftentimes you may even in your own study start interleaving immediately because you've already built up that base familiarity from taking the classes, from actually having your teacher teach it from reading in a textbook. When we sit down to study, we're not learning something for the first time brand new. Even if your teacher didn't interleave things, I think by the time you get to actually revision, that's when you really want to bring in interleaving for yourself. So if you've got any sort of maths problems to practice, or maybe even grammar exercises in languages, consider interleaving your practice, where you flip back and forth between doing a couple of one type of problem, a couple of the other type of problem, and continuing alternating between the two. It will feel harder, that's the point. You're increasing the level of challenge in your practice so that the test or exam feels easy by comparison. Just as an athlete might train at high altitude to make their training challenging so that race day feels comparatively easy. 
if it is totally impossible, you or it feels totally impossible, you might like to go back to some blocked practice to start with, so just doing one type of problem. Uh, but as Veronica says, the key is to challenge yourself to move on and start interleaving sooner than you might really feel comfortable with if you're looking for best results with less study time. And again, for the rest of that conversation with Dr. Veronica Yan, head back to episode 49. I think between you and me, of all the conversations I had this year, that was one of my absolute favourites. So do check that out if you haven't already heard it. Before I leave you today, I wanted to give you a brief word on the plan for the next few weeks. As I mentioned at the start of today, we're drawing towards the end of the academic year for a lot of students in various countries around the world that listen to the show. And so the plan is to ease up a little bit on the pace of fresh episodes through July and August. I'll be back with a new season of fresh episodes for you from the start of September. But in the meantime, over the next few weeks, here are four ways you can still access support and inspiration uh, from the world of exam study experts to see you through the summer months. First, remember that if you have not done so already, my exam success cheat sheet is a great introductory guide to the science of studying smarter, summarising some of the key ideas we've touched on in this episode and much, much more. You can get your copy for free at examstudyexpert.com forward slash free tips. Number two is the blog. I've been pretty active on the blog lately. We've published 12 new articles over the past 12 weeks, and there will be more coming your way over the summer. Just Google exam study expert blog, and you'll find the blog page and you'll be able to browse all our latest offerings Thirdly, do remember that if you want a little extra support, perhaps some more personalised advice in optimising your study strategy and finding an easier way to ace your exams given your unique circumstances, I do still have limited spaces for coaching clients. Find out more about how I can help you take the smarter path up the mountain of academic success at examstudyexpert.com forward slash coaching. That's examstudyexpert.com forward slash coaching coaching. And finally, the podcast itself isn't going to be completely quiet either. I'm lining up some bonus goodies to see you through the summer months right here on the podcast. Everything I feature today has been from the past 10 months, effectively year two for the podcast. So I've dug back through the episode list from year one to pluck out two or three gems from the deep archives, which I think are well worthy of a rebroadcast. So you can keep an eye out for those in your podcast feed every other week or so over the next few weeks. If you found your way to us more recently, these episodes may well be new for you, in which case I very warmly commend them to you and I hope you enjoy them. If you're a long-time listener, you may well have heard them before, in which case it may be high time to re-listen to these classics. And before I wrap up today, I just wanted to take a second to acknowledge those who've supported the show in any way this year, whether that's simply by tuning in every week, uh, by sharing it with friends, colleagues or more, leaving us positive ratings and reviews in the Apple podcast app or iTunes or whatever podcast platform you like. Um, and perhaps especially a shout out to those who've been kind enough to provide some financial support to help us keep the show on the road and cover our costs uh, through the Exam Study Expert Patreon programme. That's at examstudyexpert.com forward slash yes. 
thank you to each and every one of you. We wouldn't be where we are today without your support. Uh, and it's such a joy to be able to help you with your studies. And with that, I want to wish you a wonderful summer, or I guess winter for my Southern Hemisphere friends, and I look forward to catching you again soon. In the meantime, wishing you every success in everything you do.